Welcome to the Mindful Runner Podcast, a show about running and racing, trail and ultra in South Africa. Along the way, we'll be talking training, gear, nutrition, and mindfulness, all in the context of the South African racing scene. I'm your host, Fred Richardson, founder and head coach at Mindful Runner. Stay tuned as I do my best to give you all the information and none of the waffle. In this episode, I talked to Matt Bouch and Colin van der Berg, the two guys who won the inaugural DGT. We recorded this episode a week after they'd finished the event, and I really appreciate them giving me the time, considering the fact that they'd only just recovered. Something that interests me is, how did you guys actually meet Colin? Well, I think it was last year, uh, December, Matt was in the Berg for, he was doing one of his... uh, photo expeditions and he he asked if we want if i wanted to join him and we ran the giants cup trail together and then think soon after that the dgt announced that they were going to do their their race and matt kind of asked me hey do you want to do you want to do it so we had only run together once before then like matt said we kind of took a chance on one another because Obviously, it's a partnership, and we hadn't we hadn't run much together. Um, Matt, did you find that, it, that you kind of clicked it initially? Yeah, I think um, we also we we coached by by the same guy by Aaron at Flat Rock. So I think behind the scenes a bit, I'd also like chatted to Aaron and I said, "I'm gonna run with Colin. This is how it went." So I think that we kind of knew we knew of each other a little bit. So it wasn't a completely like pick someone off Strava and just be like, hey, do you want to run the DGT together? Because I think that'll end in disaster nine times out of 10. But yeah, I guess, yeah, we did take a bit of a chance. And, and in hindsight, was it a good partnership? Was it a good choice? Yeah, I think so. Hey, Colin? Yeah, it was. I think we worked well off one another. Matt is very um, like methodical and he enjoys his planning and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think I think we did work well off one another. I mean, we obviously worked reasonably well because we we ran a good time and we both still around and we both still talk to one another. But <laughs> I think during during the during the actual race, we we worked well off one another. Matt, how, I mean, how important do you think it is to have a good partnership? I mean, can you just have two good runners who don't talk to each other and just cover the distance, or does the partnership really make a difference to the finishing time? I think it definitely makes makes a difference. I think that, like Colin said, I think we both took on different roles in the race. I think we weren't really clashing, trying to compete for who's going to do one thing, you know. So I think we kind of fitted into our roles quite well. And I definitely think there are there are roles to play in this type of thing. And I think whether it's just coincidental or not, I think we kind of hit our highs and lows at different points, which I think was quite helpful. You know, Colin is, can be really supportive when I sort of, my feet gave up and were aching or when I sort of bonked a little bit from not eating, you know, then he took the role of, he took the reins, so to speak, you know, and would drive me forward and vice versa, you know? Um, And I think that is quite important. I think if you have two people that push each other really hard from the beginning, I think you're going to, blow up quite early on you know and i think that sort of ebb and flow that we got into worked worked pretty well for us so when i saw you guys um it seemed like matt you were navigating at that point did you swap navigation or 
did one of you was one of you the primary navigator through the whole thing? I ended up navigating a bit more, but mostly just because it gives me something to do. I think maybe I'm a bit of a control freak, but Colin is kind of more of a, okay, we have to go to that ridge over there and then head down and off he goes. I'm like, no, I want to see the GPS and know what we're doing or look at the map. So I think it just, it again plays to to something that I enjoy doing. You know, I think the mental fatigue of the DGT would, would have got to me a lot more if I didn't have something to do. So even if it was just fiddling around with a, with the track a bit, I think it was something that I enjoyed, you know, and again, Colin was maybe, I don't know, Colin, do me if I'm wrong, but maybe he would have really liked to have had something to do for a while. And I just took that away, but I think he allowed me to do that, which, which was great. Now, often it's easy, a little easier just to follow somebody else who's navigating because it's a little bit less stressful, but also then Colin, don't you get a chance to like see the views properly and, and, and take in the experience a little bit more because you're not focused on the minute detail. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there would be times when sort of Matt would go ahead and I'd just just like waft around and look at the views and then almost forget where, forget where I was and what we were actually doing. And then Matt would be like 200, 300 meters ahead. I'd be like, oh, shit, you know, got to catch up. But um, yeah, no, it does give you more opportunity to to look around and and just, yeah, just enjoy a lot more. Interestingly enough. It's Colin's GPS that I was uh, was using. So he he kind of provided the tools and I just <laughs> <laughs> took all that over. But... Actually, that's a good point. Um, you guys, so you were using a handheld, weren't you? Uh, just a handheld GPS as opposed to navigating on, on your watch. Why the, the choice of the handheld? We, we had to have a handheld. I think it was part of the compulsory gear, if, I'm, if I can remember correctly. But in terms of navigating... Did you find it was easier on the handheld versus the, the watch? The watch is great to navigate on if it's all that you have, but I think the GPS screen is just a bit bigger, so it's easier to see. And also jumping from a 300-meter view where you can see the whole valley into a 5-meter view where you can see if you're directly on or off the track, it's just easier on the GPS. The watch can be a little bit clunky. You kind of have to press more buttons to switch between views. So. Mm. You know, when you're cold and there's rain and you're wearing gloves and stuff, I think a GPS, a handheld, is just easier to use. So we'd we'd often refer back to the watch just for that sort of uh, breadcrumb type trail if we needed to. But, you know, and also we weren't constantly on the GPS. You know, a lot of the sections we knew fairly well, so we kind of knew which direction we had to go in. Uh, but we did rely on it a lot at night and in new new sections of the of the course, you know, pretty much between Mafadi and Tabana, like that section was quite new, was new to us. So the GPS, mm. the handhold was very valuable there. And this is a question I'm sure you've been asked a number of times. Maybe you can start, Colin. Why the DGT? Why did you do the race? Yeah, why the DGT? I've always wanted to do the DGT, as most of us that entered the race have wanted to do the DGT. And I think just like the the added safety measures um like a little bit of support like that kind of stuff just was that little bit of extra appeal to just just do it as a race and then get to know the routes and probably do another one without the race format but yeah i think just always wanted to do it love the berg always just seen the dgt routes and just always wanted to complete the whole thing yeah and matt your motivation 
I think it's the same. I mean, I have a bit of a an obsession with the, with the Drakensberg. I think, and stringing the whole thing together, north to south, is quite a sort of a proud line. You know, it's a it's a beautiful route to do. Yeah. And like Colin says, I think that the DGT run as an event put a hard date in the calendar. This is you starting on the first day. Remember, that's it. Everything falls into place around that. Whereas often I've had plans that have fallen by the wayside because of weather or because of training or some, but, you know, getting a group of people together to do something becomes tricky. And I think this event just put that bookend in the year and said, this is when you're doing it and everything fits around that. So it was a great way of making a, a longer term dream come to life, I guess. In terms of timing, do you reckon you'd you'd be faster on an FKT than you would on the race? Definitely. I think we'd be faster on an FKT. Obviously, you can get to pick your weather windows better, pick underfoot conditions or just Drakensberg conditions. And also now knowing the routes, you think if you had to, if we, if we had to do it again as an FKT, I think we'd definitely be faster. And it's not just the weather window though, is it, Matt? I mean, it's all, all the gear, the additional gear you would carry. I think the format of the race almost guarantees a finish, barring some sort of hectic weather or injury which we saw with other contestants um because of all the safety equipment it definitely guarantees you i say it guarantees in inverted commas a hundred hour finish but if you want to go fast i think you can take more risk leave a lot of stuff behind so i think while there's better potential to finish much quicker there's also much better potential to get kicked off the mountain so it's kind of always that toss-up you know we could have left a lot of the stuff that we needed to bring never came out of my bag but it was always there, you know, and I think mm. shaving off that extra weight definitely will, apart from the weather conditions that Colin mentioned, I think that weight would definitely be, allow you to go much quicker. You'd almost have to go much quicker without all those safety measures. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, you are forced to often. If you, <laughs> The only way to stay warm is to keep running, right? Yeah. That's the game. You mentioned a little earlier that uh, you, you've been on a lot of the route. Um just how much of the route did you guys cover in training? We did, Matt and I did together, we did a uh, a recce from Sani Pass to the finish at Bushman's Neck. Um, and then both of us multiple times have done uh, like the Northern Traverse kind of thing and bits and pieces in between as well. Our approach going into it, I mean, the DGT run, the organizers mandate that you do one of three reckeys that they have planned, which, or I think there was, there were four of them, four dates you could choose from. Having hiked the Northern section, the Northern section being sort of from Sentinel to Monk's Carl quite a number of times. I think Colin and I were comfortable that whole section. And then, yeah, we did the the Southern, the Southern tip, like Colin mentioned, I did another recce with Pierre from Mountain Abandon up rockeries and down uh, Gray's Pass. So that's sort of um, Clef Peak and Champagne Castle, so that middle middle piece. And then Colin then actually had, had went on another one of the reckeys that they got snowed out, which was intended to be, I don't know if you want to correct me here, but intended to be up Gray's and down Giants. Hey, Colin? Yeah, up Gray's and down Giants. So it would have been... Uh, yeah, Giants, Mufadi. So I think, yeah, north and south, we were pretty confident. Like like I said earlier, it was that middle section, so sort of from Champagne almost to Tabana. That was a little bit of a 
a mixed bag. Obviously, the the first bit of that sort of from Champagne to Mafadi is fairly easy to navigate, but then once you get into the Jarateng and the Mohotlong Valley, yeah, it is a little bit more adventurous if you've never done it before. Yeah, that's the section that I questioned Gavin on. I was like, why put giants in there, man? It really complicates the whole route, but it is what it is. Eh? Questioned a lot of things when we were climbing up giants in in the foulest weather of the whole trip. You arrive in, it's just like. That's when the rain starts and the clouds come in and the sun sets and you're like, why am I here now? Why am I not yeah. anywhere else on the mountain? It's like a little spit of land that just sticks into the bad weather, I think. And it's like it's exposed to the weather from all around. The, from a race point of view, Colin, when you, when you guys started, just like talk me through your race. How did it go? I mean, how did you feel through that race? What did you guys experience? So we experienced everything. Right from the beginning, Matt had said, okay, let's let's just run that first couple hundred meters to get to the switchbacks just so we we've really got a buffer between the other teams and and we did that and it seemed to have worked and we were just we just try to keep up that um it didn't work the whole way obviously we got out navigated in one or two places but we just wanted to get ahead of the other teams and just keep just keep pushing but we experienced everything i mean the first Obviously, the first couple of hours, you're still fresh. You're still feeling good. The altitude, the sort of the altitude nausea, headache sort of thing hasn't kicked in yet. And you're just feeling good the whole way. But then after after the first night, it just becomes, I don't want to say a slog, but, but that's is, is what it is. It does just become a slog, but yeah. It's not the first time I mean, you, you will have heard that from guys who've done the DGT. It's like one valley after the next, man. You just keep on grinding up over a saddle down the other side. That's how it feels, right, Colin? I mean, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly how it feels. But they, I mean, they're beautiful valleys and they're beautiful saddles. So yes, if you've got good weather, at least at the, that's an enjoyable part of it. And and um, Matt, it was it was pretty wet underfoot, right? I mean, some of the wettest conditions I've seen up there. There was never a point at which you could have dry feet for even half an hour. No, yeah, it was. So we we took off at a fairly decent pace. I just want to you know add one thing to what Colin was saying about the pacing. It was quite strange, a strange start line because I think you have a whole lot of really good athletes there, and everyone's kind of looking at each other like, "How are we going to run this?" It's not a hundred k where you can kind of still hang on for twelve, thirteen hours. You know, mm. it, it, I'd never done anything of this distance near that, Colin. I don't think many of the other people besides for the European team had. So you kind of didn't know how hard you should go out. You know, if you're running a Northern Traverse, you kind of know how you're going to, how you're going to do it. But yeah, we went, we got up Montessauces. And then as soon as we dropped down the back into that Kubedi river, it was like, like a slushy trampoline. It was the strangest underfoot conditions. The ground was so saturated with water. And I think from there to the end, our feet were wet. Yeah, it started posing some problems. You know, again, from about giants, our feet were very badly blistering, and it was it just added an element of uh, of discomfort to it. And I mean, then we just then the Mohotlong comes through, and you sort of have this trail that seems to almost aim for the rivers, which were all swollen and in flood. So you sort of wading you you in rain, wading through knee high water. Um, so yeah, our feet were were drenched from start to finish. What was your basic tactic at the start of this race? How how were you going to approach it versus how it played out? Plotted 
a sort of a rough time and we knew we wanted to try and aim for as close to five minutes or five kilometers an hour as possible. Obviously that was always going to be variable because certain sections would be, would be faster. And then once you start having sleeps or breaks, that sort of average time slows down quite a bit. And I think we were, were fairly on pace for a while, I'd say, you know, almost until sort of cleft peak where the weather started creeping in. And then I think we reverted to our sort of B strategy, which was to just not stop, you know, to just mm. keep steadily moving. Even if at some points it was a crawl, it was kind of just keep moving as fast as you can. Try not to try limit the amount of time you have little stops. You know, you're often tempted to put your pack down and get something out and fiddle and faff. But when you yep. do that over 220 Ks, that adds up quite a lot. So I think that was pretty much our only game plan is just keep going, you know, limit the stops. We're not really sleeping that much. Just keep moving forward, which I think we did to varying degrees of success. And maybe we'll speak about the sleep deprivation thing in a bit, but that was, that uh, was my very next question because you mentioned sleep about four times in this last um, conversation. So sleep, Colin, did you guys get much sleep out there? We, we had gone in with a plan of, trying to sleep an hour on the first night and then another hour at Sony Pass. Um, but our first night's sleep, I, I think Matt will tell you exactly where it was. I can't remember exactly, but it was a little bit earlier than we had anticipated. And I think it was Yodler's Cave, hey, Matt? Yeah, it was just after you climb out of the Yodler's Cascades, just when you get onto that ridge before... Um before champagne there's a little cave down to the left it's a bit of a detour about 800 meters there 800 meters back off the off the course and i think yeah just the underfoot conditions we'd plan to push to mafadi and sleep sort of at the 100k mark but i think we ended up sleeping at around 72ks in full all to all told probably like slept for 30 minutes with 30 minutes of faffing either side or 15 minutes or like a 45 minute to an hour stop mm. which yeah again was one of those things we just kind of adapted you know we came out of a really big climb it was nighttime i think we were both a bit tired we wanted to just stop rearrange our packs eat something and try get some some rest but as anyone that's done it will know you don't have a sleeping bag. You have a very thin bivy. You're sleeping on a hard, cold cave floor. So it really is just kind of closing your eyes and letting your body not move for a bit. It's more of that than a restful night's sleep, you know? Yeah. Did you guys plan on using the caves for sleeping or, or did you carry a, a full tent? Because that was an option, right? We did carry a tent. I think because of the way the weather planned out at the last moment, they made it mandatory to carry a tent. So we had a a fairly lightweight tent that we were going to squeeze into, but it's a mission to pitch the tent. You know, you look at sort of the economy of time and if you're going to spend 15 minutes pitching a tent to climb into it, to sleep for another 15 minutes to de-rig it, it's better to just find an overhang or a cave and climb into your bivy bag, you know, which is I think what we opted for. I think that's also, yeah, that's the standard procedure on the FKTs is just climb into the bivy bag, put it over your head and the weather must do whatever it's going to do. Yeah. And as you get more and more tired, you know, like that becomes more and more appealing. We got to the a point near to the end where we were able to have sort of 10 minute power naps, literally just on the trail. We would just be like, Colin, I need 10 minutes, lie down, close your eyes, wake up and feel marginally rejuvenated. But yeah, I mean, 
I suppose that that's what happens <laughs> in these things. And were you sleeping during the day or was it um, only at night? Those power naps were, there was sort of one in the day, I think in the Jarrett Ting. Um, we had one just before the last river crossing in the Mohotlong Valley. Um, they were kind of as we needed them because you get to a point where you are almost a bit delirious, you know, like we both had it where we started hallucinating and seeing sort of an animal that may or may not have been there, species that don't really exist in the burger, Colin. I've heard the burger has squirrels, Colin. Skunks. Skunks, <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they're in my mind. <laughs> I tell you, the stuff I've seen in the middle of the night in the long run, it's, like, it's insane. Yeah, your mind plays real tricks on you, doesn't it? And you just kind of accept it. You're like, oh, there's a like a car parked on the trail. That's mm. fine. Oh, no, wait, that's a rock. Oh, there's a camp. No, it's not a camp. It's more rocks. And then you, you kind of are like, I just need to sleep for 10 minutes because actually we are in hazardous terrain and this is not good that we are kind of just accepting these hallucinations. Let's, let's get some rest. Highs and lows. Colin, high point for you during the race thinking about it now i actually can't put a an exact an exact spot where there was a high point but definitely getting to champagne um early morning and seeing the sunrise that was a that, that was a that was a definite high point but a lot of you you'd spend three four hours on like this sort of high plateau in your mind so, I mean, you'd be going up and down valleys and through saddles and whatever, but still feeling really good. And maybe even just thinking about the sunrise you just saw kind of thing. But, um, you know, if there was one point to put on, it would definitely be that sunrise when we got to sunrise when we got to Champagne. Yeah. That sunrise is particularly memorable because it was the first sunrise. You know, and we sort of, as we came down past the head of Ship's Prow Pass, it was all engulfed in cloud and it was really spectacular. But I think, I mean, both sunrises that we saw, the second being crossing that plateau towards Sani Road with a big rainbow arced across the valley. You know, sunrises always kind of lift your spirit. You've just walked slash run through the night and people say it, but you don't know it until it's happened. You really do feel rejuvenated as the sun comes up. So I think that's why... I mean, imagine if you ask any other team, seeing the sun come up and knowing that you have 10, 11 hours of daylight ahead of you, it's just, it's a good feeling. But then also the Jarrating Valley for me was like a high point. I really thought it was beautiful the whole way through, just immense. Just, I mean, I said to Colin probably a hundred times, just the scale of those, that the sides of those valleys is just incredible. And you're there all by yourself. There's a couple of odd sheep, maybe a friendly shepherd here or there. And you just really feel like that's why you do these things. You've escaped to this place and it's just you guys there moving with a light pack, just everything you need, everything simple. Your objective is just to keep going forward. You know, I think those were quite extended high points. Yeah, the simplicity of that. It has a primal appeal, as you say, just moving through the landscape. It's kind of what you were born to do. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Low points. Matt, <laughs> what were your low points on this route? Well, you, let's stick it to one as well. What, what was the lowest point for you? I can remember it quite clearly. I mean, we'd gone up giants. We sort of contoured around. We were about to drop into that Mohotlong Valley. And the sun was setting and it started raining. And I think I'd neglected to eat enough. So I had a sort of a caloric deficit. And I started to get really cold, feel almost like a bit fluey. And I just 
everything kind of closed in. And I think mentally that was just, it, it took a few hours to push through that. You know, that was definitely a point where I was like, why are we here? This is silly. Like, this isn't great, you know, and it, mm. it was a bit of a struggle to kind of motivate yourself to just unlock that, <laughs> that those bad thoughts, you know? So that definitely sticks out, sticks out to me as a low point. Colin, your low point? Going up, uh, the climb up to Mufadi at like, I think it was one o'clock or two o'clock in the me morning. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, Tabana, yeah. Uh, Sideways rain, the howling wind, just cold, and then the climb just didn't want to finish. That was a proper low point. But a life-changing experience for both of you. Would, I mean, I'm guessing, but would you describe it as such? Yeah, I would. To be honest, I'm still trying to get my my head around it, the whole experience. Um, I don't think I've quite come to terms with the race or just doing the Grand Traverses as a whole yet, but definitely a life-changing experience, I would. Yeah, I think I, I echo that. You know, it was something that we'd, we'd put a lot of focus on for a good couple of months of training and thinking about it and planning and wrecking and fiddling with gear. So it was like this... It consumed a lot of time, you know, so to to dedicate that much time to something and have this sense of community around it and like-minded people and people, it really took up the better part of our year in a good way, you know. So I think everything that goes into the race also made it such a great experience. And then, yeah, like Colin said, it, it's tricky to process because, yeah, you, a lot of the stuff is still fresh and now chatting about it, you rethink about these these bits and pieces and everyone always asks, you know, what's next, what's next. And it's like, well, I just slowly wrap my head around what we, what this is, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's definitely, I think there's a sense after a big event like this, you need to take the time to let it settle in your bones. That's almost the feeling, right? It's got to, you need to absorb it properly before you move on and think about what's next because, because it was such a rich experience. And there is, I mean, it's, it's a monster distance. And not only did you guys finish it, you won the race. For me, I know Matt was talking about winning the race right from the get-go, and 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 he is like that. He he is competitive. Winning the race was a cherry on top, but I think the the bigger thing I got is just completing the race, the like the mm -hmm. bigger experience or the better experience. I don't I don't know. I can't put it into words, but yeah, the winning the race was a cherry on the top, and just the experience of the whole thing was just. Almost, almost perfect for you, Matt. As as the the planner, the competitive guy. I mean, this all came together, and it worked out pretty much how you wanted it. I think you always have big, big ambitions for these things. And Colin, I, th I think Colin is just as fierce a competitor, maybe a little bit more humble than I am. I think that I definitely went into it with the intention of doing as well as we could. You know, in thinking about it, you, you're winning this race. You kind of juggle a few things. You juggle winning in terms of going faster than the competition, winning in terms of actually completing it, winning it in terms of getting the experience that you want out of it. So I think it's multifaceted, you know, and I think from that perspective, that's why the first position crown is the cherry on the top. You know, in hindsight, not as important as everything else that went into it. I think the way the whole thing came together was great. It was a a unique experience like a very very was very special you know and to do the first one as well means a lot you know for me as for colin i think the drakensberg 
it's a place that I've, you know, discovered a lot of stuff. I've spent a lot of time playing and fiddling. I've had good and bad experiences there. So for me, it was quite an important race in that respect. You know, the, the mountain, those mountains mean a lot to me. So yeah, I'm very happy that they came together. Got And if you had to like give us two bits of you must do this or you must carry this bit of gear, what would your advice be to the guys coming along for the next event? I would say the best thing you could possibly do is recce as much of the routes as possible. That's the uh, that that to me is is the number one priority because I know when uh, Matt and I got to Sani Pass and we knew exactly what was coming for that last forty six k's or whatever it is. We we had done that before and we we knew exactly what was coming and it's just it's just that little bit of extra weight off your shoulders. So I would say, yeah, just recce as much of the routes as possible and yeah, get to know your gear. Get to know where everything is packed uh in in, in your fast pack or whatever whatever you got. But no and, and keep packing things in the same place. So don't don't go out one recce and pack your pack um your GPS in another pocket compared to when you go out on another wreck and, and then it's in another pocket mm-hmm. and you're always looking for it. Um, yeah, get to know your gear and just wreck here as much as possible. I 100% agree with, with Colin's pieces, but practically speaking, I th- if and when I do it again, I would plan to try and move faster, but allow more time to sleep and take care of yourself. So I think having a proper stop where you don't feel guilty to sit down for an hour and a half, change your socks, dry your feet out, um, so that those sections of moving become a little bit pleasurable. I think move quicker and stop potentially a little bit more would be would be one piece of advice. And pack a lot of different food. Being the planner, I like to know this thing has this many calories and it fits into this size and stuff. And I think while things worked very well, I trained with all the food we ate. So I never sort of got sick from the food. I think you get sick of it. So Pack a variation of things, salty, sweet, chewy, gels, every every option. Give yourself an abundance of things to choose from because at the end of 60 to 100 hours, yeah, you want – I mean, Colin was eating some of my stuff. I'd eat his stuff. It's just give yourself some choices. Colin, you apparently suffered from altitude a little more, but you spent time up there. What do you put that down? Yeah, Fred, I don't actually know because – Sometimes I'd go to the I'd go to the berg and, and do runs and stuff and not suffer at all. And then other times I'd do a very similar run, similar pace, and I would suffer much more with altitude. And now when we did the DGT, I I didn't have headaches that much like I normally get, but I did just have constant nausea, um, which just didn't seem to go away. Yeah, I can't put it down to one thing, but I just that's uh, just what happened this time. And I might go to the Berg in another month's time and not have any problem. I, I honestly, because both of you guys live at the coast, did you do anything specific um, other than the reckeys for altitude adjusting, or did you just depend on the reckeys to to get you there? I think to actually acclimatize, it takes you know like probably close to two weeks. So. Ideally, we would have both spent a lot more time up in the Berg. I think I maybe had a little bit more benefit because I drove up from the Cape slowly. So I spent, you know, two days sort of in Bloemfontein, a couple of days in Clarence, an extra two days at Vitsi's Hook before the event. At each of these places, I was doing sort of 
shorter, easier effort runs, um, mm. building up to that. That's the only thing I can see in our build up and prep that differed between Colin and I, because yeah, we both live at zero meters above sea level. Yeah. We do the same amount of climbing every week. We train in a very similar fashion. So I think it's also luck of the draw. Like the altitude thing can get you one day and not the next. So that's kind of you, it's like the dark horse. You know, you can't really plan for it. You can take some ibuprofen or headache pills or something to kind of take the edge off it a bit. But mm. yeah, if it hits you, it gets you. And the problem with the DGT is you pretty much at three above 3,000 meters average the whole time. So the only thing to do is to get it finished as quick as you can. Exactly. You're never going to drop down, mate. That I've left out that you think is worth talking about. In the spirit of this event and getting off the ground, I would I would urge a lot of people who potentially think they can't do something like this to try and do it. You know, I think that a hundred hours, it gives you time to do it at a generous hike, steady pace. It's a lot more accessible even for people to try than they would think. You know, and I think an event like this puts it within the realm of of more people. You know, I think doing this by yourself it's a completely different thing, you know, and I really would like to see more people giving it a go. You know, we saw all sorts of calibers of people, of athletes doing it. And yeah, I would, I would definitely urge people, anyone that's thinking about it to give it a shot, you know, even attend one or two of the training camps, see what it's about. You know, I'm happy to also offer support and help and advice to people that want to do it, but it's such a cool event. It's such an amazing place. I would, yeah, I would really like to see more people giving it a shot. You know, whether or not you think you can do it in 45 hours or scrape through in 99, I would, yeah, I would definitely, definitely urge people to to consider it. Matt, just, um, we haven't touched on this yet, but I mean, you make a living out of leading photographic tours in the book. Yeah, I wish that was the... Uh... I wish I did that all year round, but yeah, in the summer months when the berg's nice and green, we do we guide photographic trips um, up up in the berg. Yeah, so and and would this experience have changed the way you approach those trips? Yeah, I think that they they're so different. You know, those trips we we almost approach it completely the opposite way. Like we would spend, you know, I'm leaving again tomorrow for another trip. We would spend five days in a 30 kilometer section to really really look at each of the nooks and crannies so it's almost the opposite approach it's really focused time in a small section it's as colin knows because of some of the reckies it's like i always want to bring my camera with me because you see so many great things you know like the cloud inversion at the amwani pinnacles or the the clouds rolling up ships prowl past i've been there so many times with the camera and it's clear skies and nothing you know The berg is fickle like that. You run through it with no camera and all of a sudden conditions align. You know, but I don't think the two are the same things, but from a photographic perspective, seeing some of those valleys in the interior of Lesotho a bit more has definitely piqued my interest. You know, I think there's so much more than the Together Falls and Devil's Tooth that everyone knows about. And I think people just need to get exploring a bit more, you know. When you start opening it up with a, with a race like this and people start to see the inside of the suture, it's not just the escarpment edge, which is where all the, the pretty pictures are, but you start running in those valleys and you start running on the, the ridges that are inside the suture, your, your perspective changes on what's available then. And the amount of adventure that you can get on that route is astounding, even in the space of 30Ks. Absolutely. If you think that you feel dwarfed standing on the edge of like, 
Tagela Falls, I think you should really feel what it's like to to walk in amongst some of those valleys because that, that's really where you feel the scale of those mountains. So yeah, even even the those of us who were there taking it a whole lot easier still got to share in some of that experience. Yeah, I don't know about about taking it easy. I mean, we spoke about it quite a lot. The route marking and the navigation and stuff, the logistics that went into that were were feet in an, in an, in and of itself. You know, <laughs> like yourself and your your crew that just had to hike up to Champagne, back down to your camp, and then up to Mafadi, and then back down, and then back up to Mafadi. I mean, that's a yeah, it's a big place to put markers. The the lessons you've learned now in the book, how? Are those lessons going to come through in, in the other events that you're doing? I mean, Colin, you're doing, you've been doing a lot of running this year, yeah? Um, probably more racing than Matt? Um, yeah, I, I definitely did more racing in the second half of the year than Matt. But um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how we're going to uh, incorporate what we've learned on the DGT now into other races. It's kind of difficult because the DGT, what I mean, what you do up there is so different from what you're going to or how you're going to approach a 100k race or even a 100 mile race um just because of the different terrain and and the length of it but um yeah if I was ever in, ever going to enter another 200k plus race I kind of know how I'm going to train now I'll just go just go do a DGT as training practically speaking I think to do something like this again I would train a lot more with a heavier pack longer distances and lower intensities. I think that we did a fair amount of that, but I think I'd spend a lot more long days, like 12, 15 hour days hiking, you know, out in the Cedarburg down in the Cape or even just through the Cape mountains, because I felt like the DGT, you were never sort of in that orange or red zone that you might be at like a hundred K race where you are actually just pushing, pushing, pushing. You kind of just, at a moderate intensity for a very long time and it takes its toll on you. So I think that's how I would look at the training. And I mean, interestingly, like we, like we said, we have the same coach and I think we were almost experiments for him in some ways, you know, he's trained loads of people for hundred milers and hundred K races, but getting people ready for a DGT. I mean, I'm sure you would know as well, Fred, like it's, it's a different thing. You can't really tell someone to go out and run, a recce of the same distance you know break them you know so yeah. it's figuring that out um but in terms of year a year calendar like i really enjoyed the sort of structure of the dgt or some type of long distance event and then two or three shorter i say shorter like 100k races yeah. earlier on in the year and i mean we already i'm already sort of thinking about other long distance hikes that i could look at at racing or doing in a fast time because i really enjoyed this experience this distance and this sort of approach you know so has this swung you more um matt this is definitely for you has this swung you more towards fast hiking and and kind of away from the i want to go race 100 milers yes and no i think i've like i think there's like the i you know like the Matt 100k I'm going to enter opens tomorrow. Um, you know, I'm still interested in racing a couple of 100k races, but it's mm. definitely piqued my interest in a big way at these longer distance adventures, you know, like the yeah. GR10 in the Pyrenees, which is 800 kilometers, you know, like the fact that that is actually something that's possible, not in 
in a race pace, but, you know, hiking at 4Ks an hour, like what can you do? You know, how can you do, how can you experience a long distance event over two weeks, you know, or 10 days? It's something that I just feel it suits a lot of the things I enjoy. I like planning and fiddling and like plotting these things out, you know? So mm. plus I'm not as fast as Colin, so he can go and <laughs> do those events, you know, run blazing fast 100K races. I need to work to my strengths. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, we all do. Some of us are getting older, so we'll just go longer. The older you get, guys, the longer you go. It's the only way to stay vaguely competitive. Colin, for you, I mean, future races, has this influenced what you want to race in the future? I, I'm not sure because I've, the only thing I've been thinking about running next year is a sub <laughs> three-hour marathon. Um, so <laughs> that's almost the complete opposite. But I really did enjoy, I, I want to say, is, the simplistic approach of it is like just putting on a pack and just going for as long as you can as at, at just a constant slow, well, not slow pace, but just a mm. constant moving pace. I I have looked at some other races, like uh, long sort of races, 250K, 300K races, but whether I'm going to do them or not is a different story. But it, it has it has opened up something else because – there was always a part of my mind that said, oh, okay, well, like it's a it's a 200K race. It's difficult. You can't do it. But now that it's finished and it's done, um, yeah, there is something else that says, okay, well, you can do a 200K race. Maybe you can do a 300K race. Or There's an element to, to um, the DGT we, we haven't even touched on, the fact that it's actually unsupported. There's a, there's a big difference, I think, racing a, a 200 mile supported event where you have an aid station every 12 or 16 k's to an event of 200 kilometers where you are completely self-supported or you had one aid station right at 100 miles and that obviously changes the way you pace it but it changes how you approach the whole event doesn't it definitely and and i think that's where um matt's planning came into great effect because he yeah he he was able to plan almost down to the hour of like what we needed and how we we're going to pace everything but yeah it's yeah the unsupported thing is it is difficult and i think we're i won't say we weren't used to it but it is it is different from any other race yeah. in south africa yeah yeah that's definitely i think that that's what sets it apart in a big way it, it, it's not just the distance i mean 200 and odd cases is a long freaking way for anybody but it's not a it's not just 100 miles plus 50 k's because you don't have those aid stations there so yeah i think it makes a heck of a difference over and above the the gear that you have to carry i think just seeing people and having that little bit of a pep talk or someone to take off your shoes or you know yeah those aid stations are a big morale boost I've hit lows in like like Addo where you rock up and then there's someone friendly and they shove some brownies in your hand and all of a sudden you're tearing out of there like a new human yeah. and you don't get that on this. You can have a long time where it's just you and Colin both like looking at each other for support and yeah, it is it's definitely different, you know, and I think if you look at longer races, like I've tentatively looked at like, you know, the Bigfoot 200 and those tahoe 200s in the states and you look at people's time differences between when they're supported and unsupported and it's can be 
10 to 20 hours difference, the same athlete doing it by himself and doing it with a crew, you know, and that's yeah. just testament, I think, to the difficulty or the, the other challenges that not having a crew and not having supporters poses, you know, so I think it's exciting. I mean, it's like it does unlock a new thing. As you say, it adds in those additional variables, make it more of a challenge, more of an interesting puzzle, because that's what Ultra is all about, is just solving the puzzles as you go. It's interesting that sometimes like a longer race isn't necessarily more of a challenge than a faster, shorter race. You know, like the FKT on Mafadi, for example, that to me makes me far more scared than like a DGT. A sub three hour marathon, like since shivers down my spine, but running the DGT again, I'd be like, yeah, cool. Like let's April, let's go, you know? So I think it's different challenges for different that they have their own different challenges have their own challenges people want to get hold of you matt you mentioned earlier that they can guys can contact you have a chat uh how do they get hold of you matt bouch photo so m-a-double-t-b-o-u-c-h photo okay cool and i'll include that link in, in the show links as well um and you colin if you you're willing to talk to people um you can find me on instagram i think it's at muggy ask yeah yeah, I, I, there's only there's only one of me on Instagram like that. How did you get to come up with that name, by the way? Yeah, Maggie Ascot. I was I was creating a, a Microsoft Xbox account so I could play online games, and I it just like it just made one up, so I just kept it and used it for pretty much everything. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. And well done. At least an SA team took the first one. Let's hope we can keep that going. Are you guys going to go back and race it again next year? Have you have you thought about it? Look, I, I definitely would be keen. I think I'll definitely be back there either helping on the course or running it. I think the running it kind of depends on who enters. If it feels like it could be a nice competitive race. I think I'd be keen to enter it again, but otherwise I'd really like to be there to support some teams and help people get across and complete it. You know? So I think we'll see how next year pans out. Also, I want to race UTCT and some, and possibly Skyrun so that November is always a tricky time because there's so much good stuff to do. So you kind of have to be like, what am I racing and what am I supporting? And I think the same as Matt. I have, I also want to kind of race UTC next uh, UTCT next year, but I, I would like to do it again in a race format, but also in an FKT format. You know, it just depends how the year is going to go, kind of thing. You, it's it's hard to start planning things now. So my advice to any athlete who's broken a record is leave it. Don't go break your own record. It's like there's no point. Let somebody else break your record, and then you come back and defend. It. <laughs> no, make them break your record first. Leave it on the board, you know what I'm saying? Good advice. And plus, we won a cool blanket as well. So, I mean, it depends what the prize is. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Mindful Runner, check us out at mindfulrunner.co.za. On Instagram, you can find us at Mindful Runner. In the meantime, enjoy your running, happy trails, and don't forget to subscribe.